Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Cam, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grant, and we're so glad uh, that you have joined us today. Uh, it's around this time of year, as school begins in the fall, that students all across the country are led through various iterations of All About Me projects. Do you remember those projects in school? Maybe it was cutting pictures out of a magazine that represented you and your interests. Or maybe it was creating a small photo album of your family or a series of small drawings of things that were important to you. I'm certain that we all did this at some point, likely every year, at least in elementary school, and even perhaps all the way to grade 11, if you can believe it, like my son needed to do last week. True story. Our family was walking through the craft section of Dollarama just a few days ago looking for crafting supplies so my nearly adult son could present an all-about-me craft in his English class. I don't question the legitimacy of our education system as much as I do when my son can literally drive himself to the store to get the glue sticks and thumbtacks that he needs for grade 11. Anyways, I digress. Now, these projects I've heard from my elementary school teacher friends are actually a really good way for them to get to know the kids in their class. Think about it. Depending on the angle of this About Me project, teachers within the first few days of school can begin to understand the, the history, family situation, even economic situation of a child, as well as what it is that excites them or makes them tick. In short, this simple project, a character study or autobiography of sorts, can provide context which will prove to be helpful as they interact with their students for the rest of the year. Well, friends, that is what we are going to do today. And by that, I don't mean that Nathan and Michelle are going to wheel in copious amounts of craft supplies and we'll take turns telling everyone else in here what we are all about. Rather, we're going to spend our time together this morning learning all about Abram for the purpose of context that will help us as we interact with him over the next 14 chapters in our study through Genesis. Now, just before we do that, I do want to make a comment about Abram's name, the the title of his All About Me craft, and I should have done this last week. But if you didn't know already, in just a few chapters, God is going to change Abram's name to Abraham. And so along the way, you may hear the names Abram and Abraham used interchangeably, and that is because they are interchangeable. They are the same person. Now, I will try to use the name Abram up until the point in the text where his name changes. However, I may mess up at times, or some scripture passages or quotes that we use along the way may refer to Abraham before we actually get there in the text. And so just to make sure there's no confusion, Abram and Abraham are the same person, just at different stages of the journey, okay? So let's move on to our text for this morning and the content of Abram's All About Me. 
which will bring us back a few verses starting at the end of chapter 11. And so I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures, as I said, to Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 27, and we'll read through to chapter 12, verse 9. Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray today that as we encounter it, as we encounter you through it, we would leave changed as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's walk through the entirety of the text to see what we're told about Abram, the man whom God chooses to father the nation of his special people. And starting in verse, uh, in, in chapter 11, we're told about Abram's family or the people that he was a part of before God turned his descendants into a people of their own. Verse 27 tells us, Abram was the son of Terah. Right, that's the first thing that we learn about Abram. And as we see in the genealogy of chapter 10, Terah's family line can be linked back to the first man, Adam, through Noah by way of Shem 10 generations earlier. Now, as we read, Terah had two other sons, Nahor and Haran, perhaps amongst others. Verse 27, and they all lived in, our text said, Ur of the Chaldeans. Right? Verse 28, this is where Abram grew up. 
Now, what do we know about the city of Ur where Abram's family lived? Well, we know that it was the chief center for moon worship at the time. And the city was dominated and centered around a massive ziggurat. Do you remember what a ziggurat is from a few weeks ago? It's the same type of tower that the Babylonians attempted to build before God scattered them all over the face of the earth. Ziggurats were temple towers built in an upward ascending pattern within which the main god of that particular city would uh, be thought to dwell and where worship of that god would take place. And so being a city centered around worship of the moon, this particular ziggurat was dedicated to the Mesopotamian moon god, Nana. Excavations from the early 1900s have shown evidence of extreme worship practices to Nana, including human sacrifice in the city of Ur. So Abram did not grow up in a culture that honored the one true God, but rather worshiped idols. And his family were active participants in this. Listen to what God says to the Israelites in Joshua 24 too. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. Abram's family was actively involved in worship of the moon god like the rest of the population of Ur at the time. In fact, Abram's family was so committed to this religious practice that even the names within their family, including that of his father Terah, his, son, or his wife Sarai, are linguistic derivatives of the word for moon and the Mesopotamian mythological stories of it. That's how they were involved. They named themselves within and around this practice. And so here, we're hit with the reality that Abram grew up in a pagan home, right? Abram did not grow up as a believer. Abram's family did not follow Yahweh. Isn't this strange to grapple with? This is kind of like realizing that John A. MacDonald didn't grow up as a Canadian, Right? Or that Martin Luther wasn't a Lutheran. Or that Bill Gates didn't grow up using windows. Because those weren't even things until they came along. In the same way, church, Abram didn't grow up worshiping Yahweh. He didn't grow up being mentored by faithful spiritual giants before him. He didn't have a relationship with the one true God until that God spoke to him and introduced himself. And so... As we begin to walk through the story of Abram, we need to give him a little bit of grace as he gets to know the character of God and what it looks like to live out God's best in this world. And I I say this because over the next number of chapters, we are going to get really frustrated with Abram. He's going to do some really stupid things. He will be unethical and immoral. Some of what he does will be unbiblical, even breaking the Ten Commandments. But church, we need to remember that Abram didn't have the Ten Commandments. He predates those. And there was no such thing as biblical morality. The Bible, even the Torah, wouldn't be around until hundreds of years after his death. He didn't have Sunday school catechisms or youth pastors or parents who instilled godly morality. All he had was God speaking to him and correcting him along the way as he followed him in adulthood. 
And while it is right for us to notice Abram's imperfections as we go, and we will, to label his actions properly when they're evil or self-preserving, and to understand that God is using a very flawed instrument, we must be willing to offer the same grace to Abram as we would if someone showed up in our church today who had never heard about Jesus, never seen the Bible, or grown up with a Christian morality. Abram and many of his ill-thought-out decisions are simply the product of the culture within which he grew up and participated prior to God pulling him out and slowly calling him to more. So the disclaimer for all of us as we study Abram's life in the upcoming weeks is to remember that he is a work in progress, as we all are, only he has no clue what the desired outcome even looks like, which in a way should provide some encouragement for all of us, shouldn't it, when it comes to the nature of those whom God calls? You see, it's evident as we read in our text, as we will see in the upcoming weeks, that God does not simply call those with the most impressive ethical histories. God does not simply call those with the longest religious resumes. God is not limited to using those who have been dealt the greatest hand or had the best upbringing or have been believers for the longest. No, God in his sovereignty sees much more than merely our actions. He sees our hearts. As 1 Samuel 16, 7 says about God's recruitment strategy, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in the same way, God in his sovereignty sees much more than our histories. He sees our futures. And this is consistent, this is the consistent testimony of God's people, especially among those that God uses to change the world. Listen to the Apostle Paul's self-assessment for his calling. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He continues in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 10. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. God wasn't as concerned about Paul's history as a persecutor of the church as he was about Paul's future as a leader within it. And it was, by, it was God's grace that Paul was qualified for ministry, not by anything that he did. And friends, that which is true for Abram and for Paul is true for each and every one of us. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Do you hear that? 
First of all, we are a chosen people, which means that God calls us, like Abram, like Paul. We are invited to walk in obedience to him, to follow his ways, to be used by God for his glory. And secondly, we have been called out of darkness. Friends, darkness is our state when God declares us worthy of his calling. We are not chosen because we are all-stars. We are chosen because God loves us. If you are loved by God, you are chosen by him to obey, to follow, and to minister to the world on his behalf. And friends, we are all loved, and therefore we are all chosen and invited. For anyone who may need to hear this today, your background doesn't disqualify you from service to God. Your history doesn't disqualify you from service to God. Your knowledge base or lack thereof doesn't disqualify you from service to God. You are qualified to serve God by God himself. Okay, back to Abram. So Abram grew up in Ur with idolatrous moon worship at the core of their religious practice. And he stayed in Ur, the text says, well into adulthood. Verse 28 and 29. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishkah. Okay, so let me unpack this a little bit. Abram had two brothers, one named Haran who died early, leaving behind at least three children, one son named Lot, and two daughters named Milcah and Ishka. Now Abram's other brother, Nahor, married one of Haran's orphaned daughters, Milcah. Yes, that is his niece, for those connecting the dots. Well, as we see in a few verses from now, Abram brings his orphaned nephew Lot to live with him and his wife Sarai. And we will see the kind of grief that decision causes Abram in a little bit. But that is the next thing uh, that we come to know about Abram. He is married, and he's married to a woman named Sarai. Now, what do we know about Sarai, Abram's wife, who, by the way, also receives a name change later on, taking on the name Sarah? Well, we really know only three things at this point. First, we know that Sarai was beautiful. Uh, we read this plainly uh, in just a few verses in Genesis 12, 11, and we will see this play out in the next few chapters as rulers of nations are thrilled to bring her into their company. Secondly, we know that Sarai was Abram's half-sister. And we'll read that in Genesis 20, verse 12. She was also the daughter of Terah, but from a different mother than Abram. Yes, this family situation is wild. You thought your family was messed up. Now, just as a side note, and to protect them a little bit here, there was no prohibition in the scriptures uh, or anywhere against marriage amongst close relatives until much later. 
Right? In Leviticus 18, there's a list of prohibitions along these lines, which would have outlawed both Abram's union with Sarai as well as Nahor's marriage with his niece Milcah. But again, these stipulations were not made yet, and these unions were very common at this time in history as familial and tribal intermingling wasn't that commonplace. And thirdly, we know that Sarai was barren. Verse 30 says, now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now church, I, I cannot stress how significant this verse is. Not only because it emphasizes the miraculous work of God in the next season of Abram and Sarai's lives, but also because it sets the tone for Abram and Sarai's existence. You see, while, while we catch glimpses of this hardship as some struggle through the difficult reality of infertility, it's hard for us in our culture to understand the depth of shame that accompanied barrenness in the culture that we're reading about. Timothy Keller unpacks its significance. In ancient cultures, the importance of having children was paramount. All the hopes and dreams anyone had were bound up in having strong, faithful, successful children who carried on the family name and honored their parents. Further, in old age, childless couples were economically and physically completely helpless. Sarah's barrenness then would have been a source of the greatest shame, pain, and discouragement possible. And I don't even think Keller uh, says it strong enough. At this point in history, a woman's whole identity was bound up in their offspring. It was understood that a woman's purpose was to bear children. And if she couldn't perform that function, she was seen not only as inadequate, but she was often seen as cursed. In the ancient world, if a woman couldn't bear children, not only were they judged, shunned, mocked, and ridiculed, and we see several examples of this all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, but barrenness was actually a legitimate justification for divorce, which would then result in alienation and extreme poverty, perhaps even death, for the barren woman. Barrenness, to put it lightly, was no minor condition. But Abram did not divorce Sarai. And together they carried this bitter burden of not being able to have children or leave a legacy in this world, which would certainly have hung around them as a constant reminder of their shame and insignificance. Well, as we get to verse 31, we begin, begin to see something happen in Abram's life. His family that had lived in Ur for years packs up and leaves. Verse 31. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now notice, the city of Haran is different from Abram's deceased brother Haran, just in case this account wasn't confusing enough. The NIV, uh, which other translations don't, but the NIV kindly adds an extra R to the city Haran to help distinguish the difference. But sometime after Abram's brother Haran died, this tiny inbred family, as one commentator aptly calls them, 
packed up and left Ur to head to the land of Canaan on their way stopping in the city of Haran. And what we see here is that Abram moved to Haran. Now, why would they do this? Right? Why not stay where they are and live out their lives in Ur? What prompted them to leave their homeland? Well, we only find out this, the answer to this question when we flip to Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament. In Acts 7, 2-4, we read from the mouth of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans, Ur, and settled in Haran. Right, did you follow that timeline? Uh, let me unpack it for us using a map. So Abram and his family lived in Ur, right? And if you can see, Ur is down here with, in the green writing, okay? Way down here at the bottom of the picture, right? They lived in Ur, which is what we've been talking about. And then they headed toward Haran, right? Follow that uh, red arrow up to Haran where they settled again. Right? And it's here in Haran where God appears to Abram, making the covenant promises that we discussed last week, inviting Abram to move on from Haran and head to the promised land of Canaan. We following here? Right? So they go from Ur. Oh, it's gone. All right. Abram, oh, it's back? Okay, thanks. So Abram was told last week, right, the second arrow here, Abram was told last week to leave Haran to head into Canaan. But what we read in Acts 7 is that before they had even come to Haran, according to the text, God had already appeared to Abram, prompting him to lead his family out of Ur in the first place. All right, so the appearance of God to Abram that we read about last week with this threefold blessing was encounter number two. God had already appeared to him, and thus their family left their home in Ur to make their way to Canaan, right? So he's told, leave Ur and go to Canaan. But for some reason, rather than just passing through Haran and continuing to Canaan where God told them to go, verse 31 says that they settled there. They settled in Haran, now, why did they settle in Haran rather than going all the way to Canaan? Well, we aren't fully sure, but it's probably similar to the reasons that you and I stop short of going where God has called us. They were clearly called and told to go to Canaan. Verse 31 told us that this was their destination. This is where God told them to go, but along the way, the plans changed, or at least they did for Terah. You see, what they found in Haran on their way to Canaan was, as the archaeological evidence indicates, another center for moon worship. Another center for moon worship. After traveling 600 miles, this was a familiar place to Terah. One that offered amenities he had grown accustomed to in Ur. One that provided opportunity to worship the moon god as he had all his life. And rather than pass through Haran 
Terah, the patriarch, decided not to move into the unknown, but rather to settle there in Haran instead. Now, where have we heard that word before? They settled in Haran. Do you remember the account of the Tower of Babel? The people were told by God to scatter, but instead, what? They settled. Well, here we see it again. Abram and his family have been told to travel to Canaan, but Terah decides to settle instead. And that is how they came to stop in Haran. Now, friends, we would do ourselves and this text a disservice if we didn't stop to ask ourselves where we have settled in our own lives. Where have we stopped short of the calling of Christ? Where have we gone only halfway to where God is leading us? As one commentator suggests, Canaan was the land of promise, but Haran was the land of comfort. Where have you, where have I settled for comfort over calling? Where have we changed the goal along the way and settled for something less than what God has called us into? Now, I'm not going to list examples for you, but I think we should all ask the Lord, perhaps that's our homework for today, to reveal to us where we have followed him only halfway or where we have settled and not completed the journey that he has set out before us. This church is the shame in this narrative. Verse 32 tells us that Terah would stay there until his death. He would never experience or see with his own eyes the land God would give his descendants. And not only that, but he kept his family from experiencing it the way they could have as well. Acts 7 tells us that Abram and Sarai, as well as Lot, stayed in Haran until Terah's death. And this wasn't simply a a, a layover, right? It's not like he was sick and they stayed there and he died like a week later and they kept going. No, they stayed in Haran so long that by the time Terah died, God, when speaking to Abram, called Haran, not Ur, Abram's country. He called Haran, not Ur, his father's household. So Abram wasted much of his life in Haran as well because of his father's lack of obedience to God's calling for their family. And again, I think we all need to reflect briefly here as well, especially those of us with children. How does our disobedience or our settling keep our kids from experiencing God and his purposes in their lives? Church, our lack of faith, our lack of obedience or follow-through doesn't simply affect us. Will your settling for a Sunday morning only faith lead your kids to do the same and miss out on all that God has for them in terms of meaningful community and purpose? Will your lack of service in the kingdom or consumeristic attitude towards the church rob your kids of opportunities to themselves serve God and the chance to experience him using them in the lives of other people? Right? I could go on. But parents, we are called to lead our children towards Christ. Ephesians 6.4 says, we're to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Parents, grandparents, 
teachers, leaders, mentors, and role models. May our kids walk in faith because we have modeled that to them. May our kids finish the race because they've seen that from us. May we never be the roadblocks our kids need to overcome in order to follow God where he is leading them. Well, unfortunately, in today's narrative, it wasn't until Terah died, until Abram's parental obstacle was removed, that he in faith followed God all the way when God called him again. Verse 1, the Lord said, and we can write here again to Abram, go from your country, Haran at this point, your people in your father's household to the land I will show you. And verse 4 and 5 tell us, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. They set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. In response to God's promises and now free from his father's patriarchal authority, Abram obeyed God's calling. God said, go, verse 1. So Abram went, verse 4. That, friends, is obedience. For all of his shortcomings, if Abram is one thing, it is obedient. And this is radical, considering what we've learned about Abram's background. Right? First of all, Abram was just getting to know God. He had no prior understanding to fall back on, no personal experiences to lean on. All he had was God's voice, and he listened. And beyond that, it's not like Abram had nothing invested in staying in Haran. Verse 4 tells us how successful he had been there. He acquired animals and possessions and servants. Haran was a fruitful place for Abram, and he left it with no understanding of where he was going or when he would settle down in the place that God would lead him. Right Back to what we talked about earlier. What is it that made Abram qualified to serve God? It wasn't his resume. It was his willingness. Church, as we said earlier, God doesn't simply use the the best or the brightest. He uses the ones who say yes to him. Now, not only is Abram obedient, but as he traveled in obedience, we see that Abram responded with gratitude. He responded with gratitude. Look at verses 6 to 9. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now, because I like maps. Here's another map to keep us focused on what's going on here for context. Okay, so uh, he travels from Haran to Shechem, we see, which is that first city. 
And then he moves, uh, and, and we read that he builds an altar when he gets there. And then he travels to Bethel, and he builds an altar there as well before he heads toward the Negev de- desert in southern Canaan. So what is it that we see in this text or even on this map? Abram stops along the way to thank the Lord and worship him. Right? He builds altars to commemorate what will be, not simply what is. Think about that, church. Abram hasn't even received the land. Other nations are occupying it. He still has no offspring. He still has no nation. And yet he expresses gratitude for what is yet to come. Which leads us to ask another hard question of ourselves. How many of us thank the Lord along the way before we reach the destination? I think many of us do take time to thank God when we see results, when our prayers are answered, or when there's a conclusion to our confusion. But how many of us, while we are still wandering and wondering, stop to thank God for even inviting us on the journey? And for walking with us, even when the end result is unclear. Abram, without even knowing God that well yet, shows us what it looks like to truly believe Paul's words in Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Church, may we live our lives that way knowing that while our resumes don't need to be all that impressive, God's resume is flawless. His ways are perfect, and his word never fails. What God promises will come to pass. What God calls us to will be more than worth our obedience, and we can live every minute, even in the unknown, in praise and thanksgiving to the one who is forever faithful. So that, friends, is all about Abram, the one whom God chose to father a chosen people for himself. Now, we will learn a lot more about him as we go, some we won't like, but it's helpful for us to know as we begin that Abram grew up in a pagan home, in a pagan city of Ur, under his pagan father, Terah's household. It's good for us to know that he was married to his barren half-sister, Sarai, when God made a promise of a nation. That he traveled to Haran where he was stuck for a time before he finally followed the Lord in obedience and gratitude at age 75, counting God's promises as certainties. And it's good for us to know because when his project, when his all about me is pinned to the bulletin board next to our all about me's, I'm not sure what excuses we have not to walk in faithful obedience with thanksgiving to the one who calls each and every one of us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for uh, the example of Abram who walked in obedience and walked in thankfulness to you, Lord. But we thank you for the reality check that everything wasn't perfect, that everything wasn't wonderful, that he didn't have everything laid out for him, that there were obstacles in the way. But Lord, 
those obstacles don't mean anything to you. God, help us to see our situations, to see our lives with your eyes. When we look at obstacles in our lives, Lord, that we see them the same way that you do. They're inconsequential when it comes to serving the God who is over it all. God, may we take strides, take steps to be obedient to you, to be faithful to you in thanksgiving, just like Abram, imperfect people who have gone before us. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.